Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm Audrey Rinlisbacher, the author of The Mission Driven Life and founder of The Mission Driven Mom. If you don't have a free copy of the ebook and audio book, The Mission Driven Life, go to themissiondrivenmom.com and grab those so that you can begin to engage in the conversation about leading a more mission-driven life. If you have not joined our Facebook group where we do an after-the-show discussion, please go to the Mission Driven Mom Mastermind Facebook group and request to join. We would love to see you in there uh, to talk more about this and other podcasts in that Facebook group. And if this podcast or other podcasts are enjoyable or helpful to you, please share them out and give us a review and um, let others know that you're enjoying it and it's of benefit to you. Today, the podcast is called, Who Are You? And you'll come to see what I mean by that title as we go through some really interesting concepts that I actually just happened upon in the last week or so. But it's really changing the way I think about some important things. And so I want to share it with you. Many, many years ago, oh, probably at least 10 years ago, whenever Obama was elected and the Tea Party movement started and I was out there um, teaching and speaking on government and economics principles, I was holding a class. And these classes, I mean, the age range was, you know, teenagers, all the way up to 60, 70 years old. So it was really, uh, really fun groups that came to these classes that we held. And in one particular class, I cannot remember a lot of details, but I just remember that we were discussing something. And if you know much about the Mission Driven Mom and the MDM Academy and what we do there, you'll know that we do a lot of reading good things and discussing them. Like that's a huge emphasis of what we do. And so of course these classes were modeled after that. Um, and so we were doing a lot of discussing and I don't mind people having a dissenting voice or, you know, saying what they think. I encourage that. So I can't even remember what the topic was, but we were talking about something and one woman piped up and she got upset about whatever it was. And then she got kind of heated and then she started to be really rude. And I honestly can't remember very much of what she said, but I just know that it came off bad It ended up being kind of um, embarrassing for her and awkward in the classroom. And then we just kind of, I don't know, I asked another question and we moved on past that and it was over. I, I really didn't think much of it until, I don't know, a few days or a week or two later, I got an email from her. And it was the email follow up from her that really has always stuck with me. I wish I still knew where it was. I can't. I wish I could find it and read it to you. I didn't save it. But basically, in this email, she said, well, you know, I I just wanted to tell you, I don't know that she actually apologized. I don't think she apologized because basically what she was doing was justifying her behavior because she was like, you know, I've always prided myself in being someone that says her mind. And I always say exactly what I think and exactly what I feel uh, because that's just really important. And, you know, maybe in the past it wasn't such a great idea, but now that I'm old, I can, I, I'm justified in saying whatever it is that I want to say. 
And I was like, that is so fascinating. It's so interesting to me that she would say that and that she's, and the thing that I thought a lot about it at the time, and what I came to see was that she had taken this habit, this behavior that was definitely not diplomatic, not kind, not thoughtful, um, not relationship building, and had turned it into like a character trait of hers. Like she owned it as part of who she was. And she said, this is just who I am. And by doing that, she didn't need to change it. Like there was no obligation to be any different. She didn't want to ask herself the question, is this principle centered? How is it making other people feel? Is it ostracizing them? Is it making them feel bad? I mean, she just didn't even ask herself any of those questions because that is how she was and that is who she was. And that's how things were going to be. And if you didn't like it, I guess you could just exit yourself from her life. I don't, I don't know. And so I've always just kind of, I've had other experiences. You've probably had experiences like that. That one really stands out to me because it was one of the first times that I really kind of stood back and said, boy, we sure do that. We wear around as part of who we are, all kinds of things that don't necessarily need to be who we are. And I think that we get attached to them. We think that they define us. Um, I know some people who love to eat and they love to eat out all the time and they love to eat whatever they love to eat. In fact, one of them had three breakfasts before 10 o'clock in the morning at home and at two different restaurants. And these people aren't like incredibly obese. They just love to eat. And then sometimes they'll do hyper, um, you know, diets or exercise programs or whatever the case might be. But, but that they always say is that's their style. It's their style. It's the way they do things. It's who they are. And, uh, and they kind of almost take pride in it. Like this woman took pride in it. You know, this is something that makes me unique. This is something that makes me different. This is a characteristic of me or my group or my clan. I mean, you can see this in gangs to a very extremely unhealthy level. You can see it in teenage groups, you know, in in any given high school, you have all the different cliques, all the different clans that wear around, you know, this is our kind of our uniform and this is our set of music and this is the way that we talk and this is the way that we behave. And, and truly it, it isn't, those aren't necessarily identifiers of those people's uniqueness. It's just kind of the group that they've chosen and they, they wear around, that stuff as, as a form of identity. And so I want to talk for a few minutes about who you are and what it is that you might be owning and, and kind of wearing around in terms of the, this is part of my character. This is, or even like, this is one of my weaknesses and, and you just kind of own it. You identify it. You say it's who you are. I posted recently, um, I think in conjunction with another podcast, a a little video clip by Jordan Peterson. And one of the things that he talks about is the price to be paid to become a truth seeker and how it means that we have to burn off everything that isn't truly who we really are, everything that isn't fraud of truth and greatness, really, and how that might be a huge chunk of who you are and how you identify yourself, but it isn't. And so... 
So this this is going to get a little bit more down to brass tacks and 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 practical here in a second because these are kind of this is all kind of like the backstory um, to this video I found this this last weekend. So there's a guy. I think you must say his name near near Aol. Uh, his website I think is the the logo that's on the top is near and far, which is kind of a play on his name. And uh, I saw this interview with him. Him and Tom Bellew, I think is his name, does does really fascinating interviews with successful people. And it was about habits. I just I just clicked on it and how to form good habits. And and near he wrote he wrote a book. He, his expertise is in habit forming um, behaviors. How to have how to have good behaviors. He wrote a book called Hooked, which is basically showing people how to create products that are, that are like habit forming so that people want them over and over again, um, build a business around that. Uh, he also wrote a book called indistractable, which is about building personal habits and all this kind of thing. And I didn't realize this until kind of after I'd watched the video and done a little bit more research, but there is a really short article. I'm going to quote from it today and I'll link it in the podcast notes at the, on the website so that if you want to go read the whole thing, you can, it's really short and sweet has a really interesting concept that I think is going to help all of us to become a little bit better people. So he talks about how, um, let me introduce the, the beginning of this article to you because it's fascinating how he kind of opens up the problem that we all face. He says, today's top selling books are about how to acquire world-class skill. Daniel Coyle's The Talent Code looks at how deliberate practice is required to achieve greatness. Joshua Four shows us how we must smash past performance plateaus to be any good. Worse, Tom Ferriss's four-hour series is doing for hipsters what crash diets do for teenage girls, making promises of quick transformations. These authors' methods work, yet they are all dead wrong. They focus on te techniques used by the very best in a field. But what about the other 99% of us? I bet your goals sound a lot more like, I wish I could lose a few pounds, or I'd like to save money rather than I want to win the U.S. Open or I wish I was a billionaire. But authors focus myopically on the techniques used by notable greats because we all assume the great ones have discovered a secret which if we only knew would ensure our success as well. So he really hits on a major issue and he talks about how in this video how most people try to train like experts even though they really don't want to be exercise experts. They get trainers, they learn all kinds of routines, they set huge goals, and they have this attitude about, you know, it's got to hurt, it's got to be hard, you've got to push through, it's got to burn, all these things um, that is the language of the expert and really isn't, isn't really necessarily necessary for all of us all the time in everything that we do. And so he, he talks about how, um, well, he, he goes on in the article, he says this, instead of wishing you could be like Mike, Michael Jordan, the basketball player, you need to focus on and enjoy the small everyday tasks in order to accomplish those longstanding stubborn goals, such as I need to exercise more. In short, you need to become an amateur. An amateur is a consistent practitioner of a healthful habit. The amateur practices a behavior because they enjoy it and it becomes part of their identity. 
So this was a whole new idea for me. And he didn't say it quite like that in the video. And it took me a few minutes to kind of get my mind around it. But here's some examples of what I mean. So if you're a devoted religious person, so like, let's say you're um, a devoted religious Jew. Well, anytime you're in a situation where pork comes up, you don't ask yourself, am I going to eat the pork? You just don't. You say to yourself, this is who I am. There's so, there's a lot of confusion in the world today because people don't grow up with any kind of framework that helps them identify who they are and who they aren't. And so they're constantly in decision fatigue, not only because they don't have that foundation already built into their, to their lives, especially people who are non-religious don't have that framework, but then, but now we're inundated with information all the time, right? So we have this ongoing decision fatigue. I read once somewhere where you have to make several hundred decisions every day about just food. So we're in this constant decision fatigue and it, you have to keep making these decisions over and over again. Am I going to do this? Am I going to do that? Am I going to take a drink? I'm gonna, how many drinks am I going to take? Um, how often am I going to drink? What kinds of drinks am I going to drink? Uh, am I going to go to the bar? Am I going to drink at home? It's just exhausting. And if you can make those decisions ahead of time, you know, this is something that we, that we do with our youth, right? Like is as God fearing mothers, we probably tell our youth that they need to not do drugs and make a decision that they'll never even take the first offering, um, that they need to stay more, you know, morally chaste, for example, and, and to make those decisions ahead of time before the temptations come. So, and, and what we encourage them to do is to say to themselves, this is who I am, not to say, you know, this is a behavior I do, but to say to themselves, this is the kind of person that I am. And because I'm this kind of person, it follows that there are certain things that I will do and certain things that I won't do. Okay. So for example, um, I met my husband, my senior year of high school. And, uh, we, we got married a few years later. And so, um, when we were first dating, you know, we were both, um, pretty, we were both very devout Christians. And so, I don't know, we had a conversation one time about scripture and I said to him, I, I can't remember how it came up, but, but I asked him about scripture reading and he said, well, he didn't actually read it on his own very often. And I was just really taken back by that. And I was like, well, you know, you're supposed to, you know, that it's good for you. You know that you should. And it really shocked him. And he really thought a lot about it. And he finally came to the conclusion that I was right and that he should read scripture every day. And he decided to make one small decision that he was a person that reads scripture and he's missed virtually no days. I mean, almost no days from that, from, from, from that time until now, like almost 30 years later. And it just became part of his identity that that is what he does. And he changed his frame of reference. He changed the way that he talked about it. He wanted to report to me regularly that that's what he did. And it became so ingrained in him and so much a part of what he did. I mean, even if it was just a verse, right? Just that this is something that I do every single day became part of who he was. It was no longer like, it was a behavior too, but it was, it was how he talked about himself. If he talks about himself, especially in a religious context, he would say that, 
you know, I, I love scripture. I read it every day. It's part of who I am. And so near when he's giving this interview, he's, he's talking about, he talks about exercise at first, and then he talks about diet and he says, okay, let me give you an example. He in the video calls it progressive extremism, but in the article, he doesn't. He talks mostly about being an amateur and how it's better to be an amateur at something than to try to be an expert at everything. And, and instead of trying to be an expert on food and trying to be an expert on exercise and trying to be an expert on whatever it is, we should try to do those small daily things that we know will move us toward being better at something. And we should just try to be a good, solid amateur. Like amateur tennis players are still good tennis players, right? If you're not even an amateur tennis player, that means you can't even do it at all. So we want to become an amateur. He says, unfortunately, you're never going to see any books on how to become an amateur, although I think he should write one. Um, we want to get to the amateur level where we can go out onto a playing, you know, onto a tennis court and we could play a game and we could hit the ball back to somebody because we have some skills and some ability there. And we could call ourselves an amateur tennis player. We're not an expert because we can't go win tournaments and awards and make money at it, but we're definitely amateurs because we've developed that skill set. So um, he gives the example that he decided to change his diet. And I, this example that he gave really was so impactful for me. And maybe it won't be for you, but just think about it today. Just think about the first step that he took with his diet because it's telling of the kind of thing that he's talking about. He's talking about letting these habits accrue and grow, letting ourselves, giving ourselves time and permission to go about this on a slow track, but to be consistent with it, and then to allow our skill set to grow and improve until we really are actually good, solid amateurs at it. He said the first thing he did when changing his diet was give up candy corn. Well, maybe he really enjoyed candy corn and, and that was a little bit of a sacrifice, but he didn't talk about it that way. He kind of, it was kind of, you know, kind of benign for him. He's like, you know, what could I do to improve my health? I could give up candy corn. Now, maybe he snacked on it sometimes or whatever. And it was the tiniest bit of a sacrifice, but it was one little tiny thing. Now, here comes the second part, which I can't remember if he says, in the video, he doesn't say it quite this way in the article either, but this is what I'm taking from it. And this is kind of how I'm translating it. And it's really been kind of transforming the way I think about myself because what he did was he said, I can give up candy corn for the rest of my life. Now that changed everything for me because what he's talking about, he's like, okay, you know, we want to lose weight. So we go on a diet, but the whole time we're on the diet, we know that we're dieting, which of its very essence means that it's short term. It means that it's something that we're forcing ourselves to do, which frankly usually really stinks and we don't want to do it. And we're ready and just excited for it to be over because it's not part of our identity. The diet isn't who we are. The diet is something that we're doing so that we can be done and go back to doing what we normally do, whatever our amateur practices are, whatever our defaults are, whatever we identify as being part of who we are. So 
this woman that was rude in the classroom, maybe she has her moments of when she's really kind, but she's really happy for those moments to be over if she ever does do that so that she can go back to being kind of the abrasive, uh, kind of negative, offensive woman that she normally is, that she justifies by saying that she's old and she can say whatever she wants. And so all of a sudden, (laughs) my habits became connected to my identity and I had never thought about it in that way before. Because why? Because it's the framework of how we talk to ourselves. It's part of my internal dialogue and it's part of the conversation I'm having with the people around me. Okay. And so, um, when he makes a change to his diet, he asks himself, what's a commitment I can make in my diet that I can do for the rest of my life? And that is a completely different conversation to be having with yourself. Could I commit to eat one salad a week for the rest of my life? Sure, I could do that. And it would be better for me because right now I'm kind of never eating salads, right? Could I, you know, he said, he said it was over a long period of time. He made it sound like it was several years. And he said, just recently, a few months ago, I gave up refined sugar forever. But imagine how long it took him to get there. He gave up a lot of other sweet things. He said, first he did candy corn and then he did sodas in his house, sugary drinks in his house. He wouldn't buy them anymore. If he was out at a restaurant or with friends or at somebody else's house and they had sugary drinks, he would drink them, but he wouldn't buy them and have them in his house. And so all of these little tiny steps that he was able to, these little tiny commitments he was able to make to himself and commit to for a lifetime, then became part of his new identity. I don't eat candy corn. I don't buy sugary drinks. I don't drink any soda. It's just who I am. I just never do it. It's my identity. And when you turn your behaviors into your identity, and we do this all the time, we turn our behaviors into our identity all the time in a negative context, especially women are really good at this. Like I'm a mom who yells or I'm, you know, I'm not good at reading or, you know, I, whatever it is, we have these behaviors that we don't like and we turn those behaviors into our identity, which is so bad for us to do. So my son got married a couple of years ago and I was talking to him about this. We were talking about something this last weekend and, and, and it reminded me of this because he said, we were talking about marriage and he said that before he got married, he and his wife had a conversation where they basically decided together that they would never consider divorce. Like neither of them were going to bring that into the conversation. They weren't going to allow themselves individually to entertain that idea. And they weren't going to go there as a couple that they were going to force themselves when they got married to make a strong enough commitment to each other that whatever came up, they would be forced to find other ways to work it out because divorce wasn't on the table. And so 
They, that became their identity. We're the kind of people that don't get divorced. We're the kind of people that don't bring that up and don't talk about it. And it's fascinating because several of their peers, meanwhile, have gotten divorced because they didn't, you know, that might be an option. That might be something I need to do. That might be something I might entertain if I really needed to. And so, you know what? When things got hard, they didn't entertain it. And you know what? They did end up getting divorced. So we... We can make, we can change who we are in these small incremental ways by tying them back to our identity and doing such small, tiny actions that you can commit to for a lifetime that you never go back on. So I have wanted to get up. I've wanted to get up at 4 a.m. in the morning. And I know people who just do this by default. They don't even necessarily want to be up or it's easy for them because they're like morning people or whatever. And so for years, I've time. <laughs> if you know me very well, you know I brought this up. I get up by like 6 or 6.30 most days. Last year, I had to get up at 5.30 for my daughter. It's not that I can't get up or that I don't get up. It's just that I realized in, in, in watching this video and thinking about this process that I have identified myself as someone who's not good at getting up, someone who doesn't like getting up, someone who's really good at sleeping, someone who sleeps really well in the, in the mornings and likes to sleep, you know, in that early morning time. And because it's my identity, I can't get over that hurdle. I can't just be the person who now gets up in the morning because my identity is actually tied up with being, not being a morning person. And that paradigm shift was so massive for me. I was like, oh my goodness. I never realized that I was doing that to myself in the way that I talk to other people. I mean, I've, I've reached out to people for help, right? And I'll say, could you just help me? Could you call me? Could you make an alarm? Blah, blah, blah. Because why? And then I would describe myself as a person who's bad at this and can't do it. And it's hard for them. And they're not a morning person. And I'm every time I'm like reinforcing who I am in a negative context and making this harder for myself. So it was just such a huge insight. I really wanted to share it with you. So now, now I have this frame of reference of like, okay, <laughs> uh, I'm going to get up, I'm going to change my morning habits, right? I really want to do that. I want to be a person who can get up consistently earlier in the morning and use that time for effective writing. I envision myself that way. I've, I've, I've thought about it, you know, countless times, but I don't actually do it. And so, um, now I have to make a commitment about getting up that is something I can do all the time, forever, for the rest of my life. And so I would think of something, I always, you know, I always get up at 5.30 and I was like, nope, that's not going to work. Okay, I always get up at 5.30 when my older kids have school. Okay, that's a little closer. Um, when I'm not sick, when you know, it's not the weekend. And I'm going to have to, if it's going to be a commitment I'm going to make, and keep the rest of my life, it's going to have to be doable. It's going to have to be a tiny baby step. It's going to have to kind of be like candy corn, right? Like I have to get out of bed before seven every weekday, 
even if it's 659, <laughs> you know, I can keep that commitment. And so it's about who I am. It's about reframing how I talk to myself, how I talk about myself and how I talk about my, my habits and my morning time so that I'm talking to myself in a way that is going to make me kind of an amateur at giving up, getting up in the morning when I want to get up. It reminds me of Sean Covey, um, did a book on trust. And one of the things that he talked about, the number 86 is sticking in my mind. I'm not sure if it's 86%, but it's some super high number of uh, new year's resolutions that don't get fulfilled. And so, um, he said he wanted to get up earlier in the morning. He had a project he needed to work on, but he was pushing late at night sometimes and not always getting to bed when he wanted to. And he kept trying to say, this is when I get up in the morning. And he couldn't do it. He kept breaking that commitment and not doing it. And he finally got frustrated. And he was like, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to keep whatever commitments and appointments and whatever it is I have at night. And when I'm ready to go to bed, I'm going to look at the clock and I'm going to ask myself, what is a realistic time for me to get up in the morning based on how many hours of sleep I want to get and need to get and what appointments and activities I have going on tomorrow and what I need to get done early in the morning. And I'm going to set an alarm each night for a reasonable time. And my commitment to myself is now that I will get up when my alarm goes off. I'll think it through. I'll be fair with myself. I'll make sure I get enough sleep. But when my alarm goes off, I'm getting up. And he was able to keep that commitment. And it was just amazing. Let me read a couple more little excerpts as we finish up here from Nir's article. What could you accomplish if you enjoy doing the things you need to do? The things you know are good for you, but you dread doing. Becoming an amateur is about going from doing nothing or very little to forming a consistent behavior. It requires forming new habits. But in order to do that, you have to break them down into much smaller actions to form new habits. So you would start out with, you know, I really need to work out more. But this initial thought needs to be broken down into an easily achievable behavior if we are to become amateurs. And I love this. He said, to begin forming new habits, we need to find an MEA, a minimal enjoyable action. Something that we can consistently do that sounds easy, but we're not doing it now. And this is so counter to all of those expert books, to all of the goal setting tools you ever heard in your life, that the goal that the goal that you set should be easy and enjoyable is so counterintuitive, especially for me. But it's something you're not currently doing. So by saying that you're going to do it, it sounds enjoyable and it sounds easy. And so you do it consistently like... I'm going to walk for three minutes every day or every other day or once a week. And those small success experiences build willpower over time. As skill and willpower are increased until you're doing what once seemed difficult and it becomes easy. So I wanted, you know, I've been going to the gym and doing the thing and frankly, it's boring I'm tired of it. Muscle conditioning is great. I'm glad she mixes it up and I don't have to think, but I have wanted for years to do something different. And a few years ago, I had this idea that I could do ballet because then 
And I didn't know if it would be a good workout, but I just wanted to learn something as I exercised. I wanted to get better at something. And the last two places I lived, I couldn't find any, but I'm so jazzed because I went to the effort of looking in my new area and there's two studios close to me that offer adult ballet classes in the evenings. And you know what? I bought ballet shoes and I went twice and it's enjoyable and easy. Now I work hard. I'm sweating. It's we're doing hard things and I'm getting a good workout. But instead of saying to myself, oh, I need to be so toned and I need to lift this much, oh, this amount of weight and my arms need to be more whatever and my waist needs to be whatever. I'm saying to myself, how can I stretch and balance and tone and strengthen in a way that is easy and enjoyable? And that's going to stave off all kinds of injuries in my later, in my later life, because I'll, I'll have those, that muscle tone and I'll be flexible and, and I'll have good balance. And I'm loving it because it was easy and enjoyable. And it's something, it's something more than I was doing and, and I want to do it. Now he goes on to say that most of us want to be experts. We should only try to be an expert in one or two things because it takes so much time and energy to be an expert at something. We're going to go into system overload if we keep trying to be an expert at everything. And so as we finish up today, I just want to close with, I think, what is the biggest payoff in this whole process of becoming amateurs, of re-identifying our behaviors as part of who we are in a positive frame of reference by choosing small, rewarding actions, behaviors that we can take, that we can commit to for a lifetime so that we always enjoy them and we can get good at them quickly and be a good, solid amateur. I think the biggest payoff is the personal integrity. When we make these small commitments to ourselves, we learn to trust ourselves in the way that Sean Covey did. We like ourselves more and we're not so uh, hard on ourselves in terms of, well, I'm going to say I'm going to do this, but I know I really won't. That's a horrible feeling to think that you're going to make some kind of commitment, but you're not going to really follow through. So making these tiny commitments for a lifetime, like no candy corn, you have a little bit more personal integrity. You can hold your head a little higher because you know that that's something that you've committed to and you don't do it ever and for always the rest of your life. So my challenge to you is to start listening to yourself. When you talk about who you are to yourself and to other people, listen to negative behaviors that you might that you might talk about in a framework of that's your identity and ask yourself how you could move to a better identity and what's one small action you could take that will increase your skills, your willpower, and your personal integrity. Do that one small action. Come to the podcast page at themissiondrivenmom.com and comment for us and tell us, or in the Facebook group too, tell us what that little tiny action is that you're going to take and I'm going to figure out what my morning one was. I've been thinking about it for the last few days of my one first step that I'm going to always take and what the rules are going to be around it and how I can build my ter- personal integrity by reframing who I am as a morning person. Thank you so much for joining me. Please go get your free e-copy and audiobook, uh, e-book and audiobook of The Mission Driven Life at themissiondrivenmom.com and we will see you next time.